Thanks, Andy. Appreciate that, brother. Well, good morning. Welcome to you. It's uh, great to see you today. And uh, our subject today is indeed, as I said, one that all of us, every last one of us, can relate to, and it is the subject of trouble. Is anybody living a completely trouble-free life today? Could I see your hand? Not a one, just as I suspected. All of us face difficult times in our lives. And as you know, we're in a study of James together. And uh, today we kind of uh, begin looking at the, the first paragraph in his letter. So if you have your Bible, take it and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, where James begins his letter with these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now the word trials here that James begins this letter with contains a couple of ideas. The first idea of a trial is that it's a test. A trial is an event or a circumstance brought into our life that is meant as a test. Think of someone going on trial, someone who's been accused who's going on trial. That's a process of testing meant to reveal the truth about them. So when he says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials, he's talking about things that come into our lives that test us And the second idea contained in this word is the idea of trouble. John MacArthur says that the word trial here denotes something that breaks the pattern of peace, comfort, and happiness in someone's life. My virtual thesaurus, when I typed in the word trouble this week, shot these synonyms back at me for trouble. Difficulty, hassle, hardship, problem, ailment, pain, affliction, inconvenience, bother, something that perturbs, disturbs, and upsets. We get the picture, right? (laughs) Trouble. A trial is a circumstance or an event that is troublesome, that is hard, that is difficult, that is allowed into our lives in order to test us. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And starting off his letter, James gives us three quick facts about trials, troubles in our lives. The first is that trials are inevitable, aren't they? You cannot escape in this life trials. And if someone ever tells you that if you invite Jesus into your life, that your life will have no problems from then on, they are lying to you. Trials are inevitable in this life. My former pastor used to say, you're either in trouble right now, you've just come out of trouble, or it awaits you around the next corner. So encouraging and uplifting, isn't that? To know. Trouble is inevitable in your life. He doesn't say, if you face trials, he says, when you face trials. They are inevitable and they are unexpected often, aren't they? When you face trials, he says, and the idea is is you're blindsided by something. It just ambushes you. It comes into your life. The last couple weeks, I've had several people uh, mention to me, they've said, you know, I I went into work this week on the Tuesday or Wednesday thinking it was going to be like any other day, and by the end of the day, I was unemployed. I got the word. You're you're terminated. It's over. Clean out your desk. Don't bother showing up for work tomorrow. You don't have a job here anymore. So often trials are unexpected. They, They blindside us. And third, trials are diverse. Diverse. He says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, there are at least 31 flavors of trials, big and small, 
Some are minor annoyances. Some are gigantic, life-altering events. Some are relational. Some are mechanical. There are all kinds of trials. And just to illustrate this, I'm going to read off a list of different kinds of trials. I just kind of put a list together this week. And when you hear one that describes something you've gone through in the last year or so, I'm going to ask you to stand and remain standing, okay? And don't worry, I'm going to get you. Somewhere in this list, I'm going to get you. Here we go. Job difficulties, problems at school, an overbearing teacher or professor or boss, health concerns, unexpected setbacks, being ridiculed for your faith in Jesus Christ, being mistreated, treated unfairly, financial pressures, relationship breakdowns, divorce, marriage issues, car problems, backing out of your garage and knocking your passenger side mirror completely off the car. Funny, Saturday night there was about three or four people that had that had happened to them last night. Out of control kids, out of control parents, <laughs> in-law problems, IRS yacht audits, yikes, uh, aging parents who need uh, more care, mortgage rate hikes, a downward turn in the real estate market, an overbearing boss, hemorrhoid. How did that get in there? <laughs> yikes. Never mind. A nosy mother-in-law, hail damage, annoying neighbors, so-called friends who've turned on you, friends who leave town, power outages, ministry setbacks, shattered dreams, bad service in restaurants, annoying people who talk about themselves all the time, oil leaks, a run in your pantyhose, washer and dryer breakdowns. Got everybody yet? A pitiful performance by your favorite team, the Buckeyes, in the BCS championship game, for crying out loud. (laughs) All right. Stay standing for just a minute, would you? Just look around. If you ever needed any proof or evidence that trials are inevitable and universal and varied and diverse, you've got your proof here today. You know what? The question is not, will you face trials? The question is, how will you face trials? trials in your life because your trials can make you better or bitter you know that by how you and i respond to our troubles we can become better people or we can start down the path of becoming bitter people it's our choice really so i'm gonna let you go ahead and have a seat and james is a good pastor he's going to help us understand how to become better people through how we respond to our trials and I told you last week, James is not some you know, philosopher in some ivory tower somewhere. He's a pastor. He's, he's involved in the lives of people. And here's how he's going to do it. James is going to work to expand our vision, okay, to expand our vision of what God is doing through our troubles in our lives. So he starts in verse 2 of chapter 1 like this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds... Look at the next three words. Because you know. You might want to underline that. Because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So if James were here today, he would look at us and say, if you want to get the most out of your problems, if you want to pass the test that God has allowed into your life, if you want to become better instead of bitter, then the first thing you and I need to learn, number one, is to persevere through trials with joy. Say that with me. Persevere through trials with joy. And that sounds so trite, doesn't it? But it's not. There's some deep stuff here, and we're going to unpack it a little bit today. Persevere through your trials with joy. I think what he's saying is the first thing you've got to do if you want to be bettered by your trials is resolve in your heart to not quit. Persevere. Not quit, not bail, not give up, not throw in the towel. Don't quit. Kind of like that basketball game last night. What was the score at halftime? I walk in at halftime, and Gehanna was down by like 18 or 20 points. Yeah, and uh, second half, they just blew them away. It was awesome. I just saw you over there, Tony. I thought I'd make mention of that. I mean, it was, it was a great game. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't bail out, James would say. But here's the kicker. He adds this little phrase that seems so ridiculous, so counterintuitive. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I know some of you, you hear that, that phrase and you think, you've got to be kidding me. Is James crazy? I'm supposed to get all excited and happy that trouble has come my way? Is he some sort of a, a, a masochist or what? I think we could certainly say that James is not saying, you know, walk around through life and paint some sort of plastic smile on your face, have some sort of silly grin, when you're going through all kinds of difficult times. He's not an advocate of denying reality, for sure. But I think what he's doing is he's challenging us to expand our reality to include what God is doing in our lives through trials. And what is God doing? He says three things. Number one, he's testing our faith. Number two, he's developing perseverance. And number three, he's growing us up. He's bringing us to maturity. Let's talk about testing our faith for a moment. I mean, is there anything like trials and tribulations to test our faith to reveal what we're leaning on? That's what faith is, what we're depending on, relying on, leaning on. I remember my first trial in my life that I can remember of any significance at all. I was 16 years old, and I was in love with Debbie. And Debbie was not only beautiful and shapely, but she was a Christian. And she liked me, and I liked her. How many of you know that that girls can break your heart? You know that? How many of you know that guys can break your heart? Well, Debbie and I were were in this relationship, and I, I really cared a lot about her. Problem was that my parents at the time had this archaic, outdated idea, notion, that 16-year-olds shouldn't get all locked in on just one person in an exclusive dating relationship. And they were telling me that I needed to develop friendships with lots of girls and enjoy all of that and not get all fixated on one girl. And I thought, that is crazy, you know? (laughs) That is like insane. Nobody who does that. At the time, I thought, this is just nuts. Now that I'm a parent, I think there's some real wisdom in that. (laughs) 
but at the time it just seemed ridiculous. And so we were trying to, to you know, navigate our relationship around all of that. And, and, and finally, Debbie just had enough. And I'll never forget it. It was a Sunday night and, and she walked up to me at church with kind of this stone face and handed me a note <laughs> and then walked away. And I remember I had that note in my hands. My hands were shaking and my palms were getting sweaty. And I could feel my ears burning. And I opened it up and I read the words, Dear, John, or Dear Steve, <laughs> I don't love you anymore. Don't ask me why. I just don't. And I'm like, oh, you're killing me. I was crushed. Now, looking back on it now, you know, it seems like, well, it shouldn't have been that big a deal. But at the time, it was life. I'm telling you, I sank into depression for about a year after Debbie's ill-fated note to me. I remember having trouble getting up in the morning, having trouble eating, having trouble sleeping. I even had some of those thoughts, if you know what I mean. I remember wondering, is it even worth going on if I can't have Debbie in my life? I could not, in my 16-year-old mind at that time, comprehend that God had allowed that trial into my life to test my faith, to reveal that what I was leaning on wasn't solid. Because when you put all your eggs in that basket, when you're leaning on what some person thinks of you to feel good about yourself or your significance and your meaning in life, that can change. That's like shifting sand underneath your feet. I mean, to to rely on a 16-year, you know, the fickle infatuation of a 16-year-old girl for your significance and your value in life, I mean, it can change from Wednesday to Thursday and then back again on Friday. It's just, it's shifting sand. Is there anything like a a trial to reveal to us what it is we're truly leaning on and relying on in life? And friends, we need to know what we're leaning on. We need to know if it's solid like rock or if it's shifting like sand, if it can change. Steve, I'm going through this stuff. Why is God allowing it? He's allowing it to test your faith, to reveal what you're leaning on. No question about it. Because you need to see that, and so do I. Second, he's allowing it to develop perseverance, strength, inner strength, endurance. Like those sequoia trees, those huge sequoia trees out west that strain and totter in high winds, and that strengthens them, doesn't it? It makes them stronger. It's like that saying we say often, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There's some truth in that. God develops perseverance and endurance and a spirit of strength in us by allowing trials into our lives. I wrote this. When trouble comes, it presents an opportunity to endure and grow stronger problem is it also presents an opportunity to bail out and grow weaker. That's why it's called a test. You see, it's really a test that we can pass or fail. We pass the test by persevering and not panicking, by hanging in there and not bailing out, not by seeking to escape somehow through alcohol or drugs or entertainment or charging up your credit cards or pornography or running back to mom or getting in your car and driving to Kentucky or getting in your car and driving off a bridge 
not by relapsing into a catatonic state on the couch, but by getting off the couch and persevering. You and I are going to face troubles. You know, you can't choose your troubles, can you? But you can choose your response to your troubles. I love the way the old verse says it. Troubles may come and troubles may go, but it matters not how the gales blow, for it's not the gale, but the set of your sail that determines the way that you go. You can't choose your troubles, but you can choose your response to your troubles. And that's the deciding factor. That's the determining factor in the way that you go from that point on, better or bitter. God allows trials into our lives to test our faith, to develop perseverance, and third, to grow us up. He says, let perseverance have its perfect work that you may be mature, complete, full-grown, no gaps, no blind spots, maturity. It's like trials are God's graduate school in the school of maturity. God has a purpose for our troubles if we can just get our eyes off of the ugly details and onto the big picture of what God is doing. We can persevere through our trials with joy, even with joy. Second, again, James is a pastor. He's going to give us some practical advice what to do when we get in trouble. Pray in faith for wisdom. Pray in faith for wisdom. You know what's so true about being in trouble? We often just don't know what to do. What do I do? You know, you lose your job unexpectedly and, and, and start mulling over these thoughts in your mind. What do I do? Do I just go on unemployment for a while? Should I be open to moving to getting another job? Do I take a, a, a B job now so I can look for an A job later? Do I start my own business now? Is, this, is that what God's wanting me to do? What do I do? What do I do? Um, a few years ago, one of my sons, when they were younger, started getting... We kind of had to pry this out of him. We started getting pushed around a little bit on the bus, we found out. And we poked around to try to find out what was going on, and, and what we discovered is there was a kid on the bus who was just harassing him every day on the way home from school on the bus. And if you're a parent, you know how that affects you. And my wife and I, you know, began to, to think about this and, and talk about what do we do? What do we do about this? Do we tell our son to go tell his bus driver? Do, do we tell the bus driver? Should we go tell the principal? Should I go over to the kid's house and talk with his parents? Should I tell my son to haul off and deck the kid the next time he does this? Just kind of let the kid justice system take over from there? Should I take matters into my own hands? What to do? You know, what to do? And, and we prayed about it. We said, we don't know what to do here. So we asked God for wisdom. And when we prayed about it, it became very clear what we were to do. Death by strangulation is what we sensed God. <laughs> ah. Actually, it was a, a combination of things. We needed him, our son, to do some things. And I ended up going over and talking with the parents and having a conversation. And, and things went better after that. You know what you need when you're in trouble? You need the same thing we needed. You need wisdom. And where do you get wisdom? From God. And how do you get it? You ask for it. That's what James says in verse 5. 
if any of you lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask God, pray. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. He's not going to beat you up for asking. And it will be given to him, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. James says, when troubles come, pray and ask God for wisdom. Do you know it's okay to pray when you're in trouble? That probably shouldn't be the only time you ever pray, but it is okay to pray to God when you're in trouble. He, he invites that. And he says, if you ask me for wisdom in faith, I'll give you wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Let me give you three things. You might want to write these down somewhere. What is wisdom? What are we asking for? Well, first, I believe wisdom is God's perspective on the situation. That's wisdom, isn't it? Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's point of view. And when you're in the midst of of a problem, when you're in the midst of trouble and hardship, what we need is to see that thing the way God sees it. So God says, ask me for wisdom and I'll give it to you. I'll give you my perspective on the situation. Second, wisdom is... Good judgment to make good decisions comes from God. When when you're praying, God, give me wisdom, you're saying, give me good judgment so I can make a good decision here so I don't kill this kid or whatever it is that you're facing. And third, wisdom, get it right here, wisdom is gaining an understanding of some of the reasons for God allowing that trial into your life. Now, God is not obligated to tell us any of his reasons, is he? (laughs) You ever had the why question? Why? And there are some things, honestly, you won't know the why until you get to heaven and you can walk up to Jesus and say, you know, back in 06, I've been wondering about this. Could you explain? You know, you can ask him that. But I believe he's a good father, and I believe he wants us to know at least some of the reasons why he allowed something into our life. And so when you're saying, God, give me wisdom, you're saying, give me an understanding of of what caused you to permit this to come into my life. Because we know that everything that comes into our lives comes first through the hands of a loving Heavenly Father, right? So he had a reason for allowing it. Ask God for wisdom. Through prayer, we can access God's wisdom. And I want to say this. What we're really leaning on in life is revealed by our prayer life, isn't it? Guess what? If you're not praying, you know what that says about you? You're leaning on yourself. Or you're leaning on others. Our prayer life reveals what we're leaning on. And God, in those times of trouble, looks at us and says, lean on me. Lean on me. I invite that from you. Ask me for wisdom. Now, how does God give wisdom? God gives wisdom through a variety of channels. He might give you that wisdom that you need directly from the pages of his word. That's why it's good to be in the word every day. He might give you that wisdom through a trusted friend or advisor or or your small group leader or a pastor. He might give it to you through a book. He might give it to you through his Holy Spirit in you, just speaking to your heart directly, his wisdom. Friends, God wants to give you the wisdom that you need to face your trials. He invites you into that relationship. And it says God responds to faith and not doubt, doesn't it? Let him ask in faith, it says, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man shouldn't think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable 
in all his ways. He says, ask for wisdom and ask in faith. And this just goes back to our view of God. Do you think God is a mean, old, harsh, angry judge who wants to catch you doing something wrong so he can punish you? Or do you see God as a loving, merciful, gracious father who wants to give you the help you need in trouble? If you believe that, then you'll be able to ask in faith, believing that God's going to give it to you. All right, so let's review for a minute. Two things James has told us so far. If you want to become better instead of bitter through your troubles, number one, what does it say? Persevere through trials with joy. What's the second one? Pray in faith for wisdom. The third one is interesting. Pride yourself in God's grace. Listen to what he says, verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. I told you last week that I first studied James with a group of uh, college students college students in a dormitory bathroom and uh, I looked at that Bible again this week and next to these verses I had written this phrase trials are the great equalizer and it's true isn't it everybody's got troubles men women black white young old and even as it says here rich and poor do you think rich people don't have any troubles Do you ever read like the tabloid magazine covers as you're checking out of Target or whatever? Wealthy people are covered over with problems and troubles, aren't they? Don't ever think that wealth will insulate you from a troublesome life. It won't. One man commenting on this verse said this, James is reminding those believers who are on the lower end of the economic scale that the trials they were facing were not a sign of God's punishment, which was a popular view in that day, but rather it was a sign of Almighty God's concern for them and his active working to grow them up to maturity. And they could take pride in this ongoing work of God in their lives and in the richness of their lofty position in Christ. They could also rejoice that trials in this life were stirring up a hunger in them for the next life when the value system of earth will be overturned and the poor will be made rich, the joyful recipients of true wealth and an everlasting inheritance. To those on the upper end of of that scale, James says that trials are a reminder that all the money in the world cannot buy the most important things in life. It can't buy peace or joy or love or even security and certainly not salvation. Trials were given to wealthy people to remind them that God is impartial, And he doesn't necessarily favor wealthy people because of their wealth like the world does. And it was a reminder that heaven's accounting system is far different from earth's. And they could take pride in knowing that God cares enough for them to send trials to keep them humble and dependent on him. You know what God was doing in that day and in our day? He was taking all kinds of different people 
male and female, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, and bringing them together at the level ground at the foot of the cross. And he uses trials to do that. You want to take pride in something today? Don't take pride in your intelligence, you know, your magnetic personality, your influence, all of your accomplishments. Take pride that God in his graciousness has been good to you. That God is at work in your life. He cares about you enough to work in your life, even to allow troubles into your life to develop you into that person that you've always wanted to be and that he wants you to be. Take pride in God's grace to you today. And then James, at the end of this section, just kind of puts an exclamation point on this this, um, truth in verse 12 of chapter 1. He reminds us of the ultimate blessing that awaits those whose faith in God is proven to be genuine through the tests of life. He says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Number four, put your eyes on the prize. You say, how how can I respond to trouble so that they make me better and not bitter? Persevere through them with joy. Pray and ask God in faith for wisdom. Pride yourself in God's grace to you and keep your eyes on the prize. Some of you are here today and and this message is for you. Because you're hearing all this about troubles and trials and and you're saying in your mind, give me one good reason why I should stay in this marriage. Give me one good reason, Steve, why I should keep at it and not bail on this thing. Give me one good reason why I should keep pounding down this mountain of debt that we've accumulated over the years, and it seems hopeless. Give me one good reason why I should keep at it. Give me one good reason why I should stay in this ministry that's that's changing. and, and, and Give me one good reason to keep hanging in there with my kids when it's not turning out like we had hoped. Give me one good reason. Okay, I will. On the other side of that trial awaits a God who holds in his hand a reward, a prize for those who endure trouble. That's what James is saying. And that God is a suffering God. He knows what it's like to go through difficult times. Did you know that? Does it not say in the Bible that our God is acquainted with suffering and familiar with grief? Does it not say that he was despised and rejected by men? And and I'm convinced of this. There's a side, there's a dimension of God and his personality and who he is that you can't know until you've taken some hits. You cannot connect with him on a a certain level until you've suffered a little bit, until you've found yourself laying on the mat, face up with nowhere else to turn, and you reach out to the God who has suffered. So you want to know God? Do you? Fully? 
it involves pain. It involves pain. James says the crown of life is promised to those people. I don't know exactly what that crown of life is. I'm not convinced James knew what it was. I think it's a metaphor for a certain kind of life, a royal kind of life that God says awaits for you on the other side of that trial. A couple weeks ago, I uh, went and saw the movie Rocky. Rocky Balboa. Any Rocky fans here? Yeah. And uh, it was fun. I'll be honest with you. I was not surprised by the plot line or the storyline at all. What I was surprised by was my reaction to the movie. It was a spiritual emotional experience for me. My, my reaction was a, a visceral reaction that came from the deepest core of my being. You know the story, right? Rocky's older now. He's kind of a, a has-been or viewed that way by a lot of people, but he's still got a fire burning in his belly to do something. And so he accepts a challenge from a younger fighter, the heavyweight champion of the world, to box. And so Rocky starts training like he does, you know, running up the steps and hitting the slab of meat there and all the things he's always done to get himself ready for this match. And finally the day arrives, and he's in the ring with this young, muscular guy, and they're going at it, and Rocky is just being pummeled mercilessly by this boxer. Now, he's getting in a few, you know, punches and jabs of his own, but as, as the rounds go on, he's just getting hammered again and again, and he hits the deck a few times. And finally, they reach this round. And you know how Rocky gets when he's getting beat up. His face is all puffy. His blood running out of his nose. He just, you know, he's getting creamed. And finally, in a later round, the the younger guy just delivers this bone-crunching punch. And Rocky's wham, slams against the canvas. And he's down on the canvas. His nose is bleeding. His eyes are all puffy. He hears the 10 count in the background. And you can see in his face, he's thinking, do I really want to get back up? And, and, and take more of this. And all of a sudden, some voices started coming to him from his past. Adrian. <laughs> Yo, Adrian. And Adrian's talking to him, and she's saying, Get up! Get up! Get up! Rocky, get up! This is what you're made for! This is the, the culmination of your life! Get up! Get up! And then Paulie, get up! And you know how the story unfolds. He gets back up and gets back in the ring and delivers more punches and somehow survives the whole thing. And I'm walking out of the theater and, and my, my heart is in my throat and my chest is heaving with emotion. And I'm ducking down this side alley so no one sees me and I don't get all embarrassed because it's like, what is this? And I, I realized... I've been there. I've been on the mat, (laughs) knocked down again and again and again, bleeding, beat up, wondering whether it's worth it to go on and hear a voice. And it's not Adrian. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's saying, Steve, get up! (laughs) Get up! Don't lay there on the mat. It's not over. I've got a plan for your life. I'm Jesus. 
I have suffered and died for you. I endured the cross. Steve, don't you think that I was tempted to give up carrying that cross down the Via Dolorosa to to Golgotha's hill? But I didn't bail. I didn't quit. I went all the way to the cross for you. It says he endured the cross, despising its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. And I've heard that voice saying, Steve, get up. I'm going to give you my strength so that you can go on for another day, another week, another month. I have been there. I know in a crowd this size, many of you have been there, haven't you? Knocked down again and again and again. And you've asked that question, do I even want to get up? Can I just bail out? Or run away? Or escape? Or hide? This message is for you today. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Please bow your heads and close your eyes, would you? image and the likeness of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, God. Let's just uh, let's bow our heads together and take a few moments to just tell God how good you are.